You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. Howard Zinn was a historian, author, professor, playwright, and activist. Born in 1922, his life's work focused on a wide range of issues, including race, class, war, and history, and touched on the lives of countless people. Zinn grew up in Brooklyn in a working-class immigrant household. At 18, he became a shipyard worker and then joined the Air Force and flew bombing missions during World War II. These experiences helped shape his opposition to war and his strong belief in the importance of knowing history. After attending college under the GI Bill, he worked as a warehouse loader while earning a PhD in history from Columbia University. From 1956 to 1963, he taught at Spelman College in Atlanta, where he became active in the civil rights movement. After being fired from Spelman for his support for student protesters, Zinn became a professor of political science at Boston University, where he taught until his retirement in 1988. Zinn was the author of dozens of books, including A People's History of the United States. Since its original landmark publication in 1980, A People's History of the United States has been chronicling American history from the bottom up, throwing out the official version of history taught in schools with its emphasis on great men in high places to focus on the street, the home, and the workplace. With a first printing of only 4,000 copies, the book has now sold over 2 million copies. And in a New York Times book review, the historian Eric Foner wrote of the book that historians may well view it as a step towards a coherent new version of American history. In this podcast, you'll hear from Zinn reading his introduction to the book, and you'll hear from Matt Damon reading passages that span the summer of 1966, the 1967 urban riots in New York and Detroit, the Civil Rights Act of 1968, to name a few highlights. Here now is Howard Zinn and Matt Damon reading from The People's History of the United States. Enjoy. My book, A People's History of the United States, started with Christopher Columbus and ended in the mid-1970s. This recording, drawn from the latter half of that book, is intended for the listener who wants to concentrate on this century. But I must explain my point of view. It's obvious in the very first pages of the larger people's history, when I tell about Columbus and emphasize not his navigational skill and fortitude in making his way to the Western Hemisphere, but his cruel treatment of the Indians he found here, torturing them, exterminating them in his greed for gold, his desperation to bring riches to his patrons back in Spain. In other words, my focus is not on the achievements of the heroes of traditional history, but on all those people who were the victims of those achievements, who suffered silently or fought back magnificently. To emphasize the heroism of Columbus and his successors as navigators and discoverers, and to de-emphasize their genocide, 
is not a technical necessity, but an ideological choice. It serves unwittingly to justify what was done. My point is not that we must, in telling history, accuse, judge, condemn Columbus in absentia. It's too late for that. It would be a useless scholarly exercise in morality. But the easy acceptance of atrocities as a deplorable but necessary price to pay for progress, Hiroshima and Vietnam to save Western civilization, Kronstadt and Hungary to save socialism, nuclear proliferation to save us all. That is still with us. One reason these atrocities are still with us is that we have learned to bury them in a mass of other facts as radioactive wastes are buried in containers in the earth. We have learned to give them exactly the same proportion of attention that teachers and writers often give them in the most respectable of classrooms and textbooks. This learned sense of moral proportion coming from the apparent objectivity of the scholar is accepted more easily than when it comes from politicians at press conferences. It is therefore more deadly. The treatment of heroes, Columbus, and their victims, the Arawaks, the quiet acceptance of conquest and murder in the name of progress is only one aspect of a certain approach to history in which the past is told from the point of view of governments, conquerors, diplomats, leaders. It is as if they, like Columbus, deserve universal acceptance, as if they, the founding fathers, Jackson, Lincoln, Wilson, Roosevelt, Kennedy, the leading members of Congress, the famous justices of the Supreme Court, represent the nation as a whole. The pretense is that there really is such a thing as the United States, subject to occasional conflicts and quarrels, but fundamentally a community of people with common interests. It is as if there really is a national interest, represented in the Constitution, in territorial expansion, in the laws passed by Congress, the decisions of the courts, the development of capitalism, the culture of education and the mass media. History is the memory of states, wrote Henry Kissinger in his first book, A World Restored, in which he proceeded to tell the history of 19th century Europe from the viewpoint of the leaders of Austria and England, ignoring the millions who suffered from those statesmen's policies. From his standpoint, the peace that Europe had before the French Revolution was restored by the diplomacy of a few national leaders. But for factory workers in England, farmers in France, colored people in Asia and Africa, Women and children everywhere, except in the upper classes. It was a world of conquest, violence, hunger, exploitation. A world not restored, but disintegrated. My viewpoint in telling the history of the United States is different, that we must not accept the memory of states as our own. 
Nations are not communities and never have been. The history of any country, presented as the history of a family, conceals fierce conflicts of interest, sometimes exploding, most often repressed, between conquerors and conquered, masters and slaves, capitalists and workers, dominators and dominated in race and sex. And in such a world of conflict, a world of victims and executioners, it is the job of thinking people, as Albert Camus suggested, not to be on the side of the executioners. In the summer of 1966, there were more outbreaks with rock-throwing, looting, and firebombing by Chicago blacks and wild shootings by the National Guard. Three blacks were killed, one a 13-year-old boy, another a 14-year-old pregnant girl. In Cleveland, the National Guard was summoned to stop a commotion in the black community. Four Negroes were shot to death, two by troopers, two by white civilians. It seemed clear by now that the nonviolence of the Southern movement, perhaps tactically necessary in the Southern atmosphere, and effective because it could be used to appeal to national opinion against the segregationist South, was not enough to deal with the entrenched problems of poverty in the black ghetto. In 1910, 90% of Negroes lived in the South. But by 1965, mechanical cotton pickers harvested 81% of Mississippi Delta cotton. Between 1940 and 1970, 4 million blacks left the country for the city. By 1965, 80% of blacks lived in cities, and 50% of the black people lived in the North. There was a new mood in SNCC and among many militant blacks. Their disillusionment was expressed by a young black writer, Julius Lester. Now it is over. America has had chance after chance to show that it really meant that all men are endowed with certain inalienable rights. Now it is over. The days of singing freedom songs and the days of combating bullets and billy clubs with love. Love is fragile and gentle and seeks a like response. They used to sing, I love everybody, as they ducked bricks and bottles. Now they sing, too much love, too much love. Nothing kills a nigger like too much love. In 1967, in the black ghettos of the country, came the greatest urban riots of American history. According to the report of the National Advisory Committee on Urban Disorders, they involved Negroes acting against local symbols of white American society, symbols of authority and property in the black neighborhoods, rather than purely against white persons. The commission reported eight major uprisings, 33 serious but not major outbreaks, and 123 minor disorders. 83 died of gunfire, mostly in Newark and Detroit. The overwhelming majority of the persons killed or injured in all the disorders were Negro civilians. The typical rioter, according to the commission, was a young high school dropout, but nevertheless somewhat better educated than his non-rioting Negro neighbor, and usually underemployed or employed in a menial job. He was proud of his race, extremely hostile to both whites and middle-class Negroes, and although informed about politics, highly distrustful of the political system. 
The report blamed white racism for the disorders and identified the ingredients of the explosive mixture which has been accumulating in our cities since the end of World War II. Pervasive discrimination and segregation in employment, education, and housing. Growing concentrations of impoverished Negroes in our major cities, creating a growing crisis of deteriorating facilities and services and unmet human needs. A new mood has sprung up among Negroes, particularly the young, in which self-esteem and enhanced racial pride are replacing apathy and submission to the system. But the commission report itself was a standard device of the system when facing rebellion. Set up an investigating committee, issue a report. The words of the report, however strong, will have a soothing effect. That didn't completely work either. Black power was the new slogan, an expression of distrust of any progress given or conceded by whites a rejection of paternalism. Few blacks, or whites, knew the statement of the white writer Aldous Huxley. Liberties are not given, they are taken. But the idea was there, in black power. Also a pride in race, an insistence on black independence, and often on black separation to achieve this independence. Malcolm X was the most eloquent spokesman for this, after he was assassinated, as he spoke on a platform in February 1965, in a plan whose origins are still obscure, he became the martyr of this movement. Hundreds of thousands read his autobiography. He was more influential in death than during his lifetime. Martin Luther King, though still respected, was being replaced now by new heroes. Huey Newton of the Black Panthers, for instance. The Panthers had guns. They said blacks should defend themselves. Malcolm X in late 1964 had spoken to black students from Mississippi visiting Harlem. You'll get freedom by letting your enemy know that you'll do anything to get your freedom. Then you'll get it. It's the only way you'll get it. When you get that kind of attitude, they'll label you as a crazy Negro, or they'll call you a crazy nigger. They don't say Negro. Or they'll call you an extremist, or a subversive, or seditious, or a red, or a radical. But when you stay radical long enough and get enough people to be like you, you'll get your freedom. Congress responded to the riots of 1967 by passing the Civil Rights Act of 1968. Presumably, it would make stronger the laws prohibiting violence against blacks. It increased the penalties against those depriving people of their civil rights. However, it said, The provisions of this section shall not apply to acts or omissions on the part of law enforcement officers, members of the National Guard, or members of the armed forces of the United States who are engaged in suppressing a riot or civil disturbance. Furthermore, it added a section agreed to by liberal members of Congress in order to get the whole bill passed that provided up to five years in prison for anyone traveling interstate or using interstate facilities, including mail and telephone, to organize, promote, encourage, participate in, or carry on a riot. It defined a riot as an action by three or more people involving threats of violence. The first person prosecuted under the Civil Rights Act of 1968 was a young black leader of SNCC, H. Rapp Brown, 
who had made a militant, angry speech in Maryland just before a racial disturbance there. Later, the act would be used against anti-war demonstrators in Chicago, the Chicago Eight. Martin Luther King himself became more and more concerned about problems untouched by civil rights laws, problems coming out of poverty. In the spring of 1968, he began speaking out against the advice of some Negro leaders who feared losing friends in Washington, against the war in Vietnam. He connected war and poverty. It's inevitable that we've got to bring out the question of the tragic mix-up in priorities. We are spending all of this money for death and destruction, and not nearly enough money for life and constructive development. When the guns of war become a national obsession, social needs inevitably suffer. King now became a chief target of the FBI, which tapped his private phone conversations, sent him fake letters, threatened him, blackmailed him, and even suggested once in an anonymous letter that he commit suicide. FBI internal memos discussed finding a black leader to replace King. As a Senate report on the FBI said in 1976, the FBI tried to destroy Dr. Martin Luther King. King was turning his attention to troublesome questions. He still insisted on nonviolence. Riots were self-defeating, he thought. But they did express a deep feeling that could not be ignored. And so nonviolence, he said, must be militant, massive nonviolence. He planned a poor people's encampment in Washington, this time not with the paternal approval of the president. And he went to Memphis, Tennessee, to support a strike of garbage workers in that city. There, standing on a balcony outside his hotel room, he was shot to death by an unseen marksman. The poor people's encampment went on, and then it was broken up by police action, just as the World War I Veterans Bonus Army of 1932 was dispersed. The killing of King brought new urban outbreaks all over the country, in which 39 people were killed, 35 of them black. Evidence was piling up that even with all of the civil rights laws now on the books, the courts would not protect blacks against violence and injustice. 1. In the 1967 riots in Detroit, three black teenagers were killed in the Algiers Motel. Three Detroit policemen and a black private guard were tried for this triple murder. The defense conceded, a UPI dispatch said, that the four men had shot two of the blacks. A jury exonerated them. 2. In Jackson, Mississippi, in the spring of 1970, on the campus of Jackson State College, a Negro college, police laid down a 28-second barrage of gunfire using shotguns, rifles, and a submachine gun. 400 bullets or pieces of buckshot struck the girls' dormitory and two black students were killed. A local grand jury found the attack justified, and U.S. District Court Judge Harold Cox, a Kennedy appointee, declared that students who engage in civil disorders must expect to be injured or killed. 3. In Boston in April 1970, a policeman shot and killed an unarmed black man, a patient in a ward in the Boston City Hospital, firing five shots after the black man snapped a towel at him. The chief judge of the Municipal Court of Boston exonerated the policeman. 4. In Augusta, Georgia, in May 1970, 
six Negroes were shot to death during looting and disorder in the city. The New York Times reported, A confidential police report indicates that at least five of the victims were killed by the police. An eyewitness to one of the deaths said he had watched a Negro policeman and his white partner fire nine shots into the back of a man suspected of looting. They did not fire warning shots or ask him to stop running, said Charles A. Reed, a 38-year-old businessman. Five. In April 1970, a federal jury in Boston found a policeman had used excessive force against two black soldiers from Fort Devens, and one of them required 12 stitches in his scalp. The judge awarded the serviceman $3 in damages. These were normal cases, endlessly repeated in the history of the country, coming randomly but persistently out of a racism deep in the institutions, the mind of the country. But there was something else, a planned pattern of violence against militant black organizers carried on by the police and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. On December 4, 1969, a little before five in the morning, a squad of Chicago police, armed with a submachine gun and shotguns, raided an apartment where Black Panthers lived. They fired at least 82 and perhaps 200 rounds into the apartment, killing 21-year-old Black Panther leader Fred Hampton as he lay in his bed, and another Black Panther, Mark Clark. Years later, it was discovered in a court proceeding that the FBI had an informer among the Panthers, and that they had given the police a floor plan of the apartment, including a sketch of where Fred Hampton slept. Was the government turning to murder and terror because the concessions, the legislation, the speeches, the intonation of the civil rights hymn We Shall Overcome by President Lyndon Johnson were not working? It was discovered later that the government, in all the years of the civil rights movement, while making concessions through Congress, was acting through the FBI to harass and break up black militant groups. Between 1956 and 1971, the FBI concluded a massive counterintelligence program known as COINTELPRO that took 295 actions against black groups. Black militancy seemed stubbornly resistant to destruction. A secret FBI report to President Nixon in 1970 said, a recent poll indicates that approximately 25% of the black population has a great respect for the Black Panther Party including 43% of blacks under 21 years of age. Was there fear that blacks would turn their attention from the controllable field of voting to the more dangerous arena of wealth and poverty, of class conflict? Thank you for listening. I'm Ana Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.